Aloha and welcome to Thumbing Through Yesterday, the podcast where we take our favorite books off the shelf, blow the dust from them, and remind ourselves why it is we love them so. My name's Tom Galley. Joining me today, we've got Tony Pasculi. Thanks, Tom. What are we talking about today? Today, we're talking about Neverwhere by Neil Gaiman. Uh, specifically, we're talking about Neverwhere, the novel, because that's what we do here on the podcast. Uh, but Neverwhere actually started as a BBC TV series and then was adapted sort of in parallel into a novel by the same author. Yeah, That was an interesting read about how it evolved there. That's yeah. just an unusual path for a novel to start as television. You know, it's interesting because that's also sort of, uh, it parallels Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Yep. Yeah, so. And you've got two comedic writers, you know, here yeah. with uh, Gaiman and, and now I'm not going to be able to think of his Adams, name. Douglas Adams, Adams, Douglas yeah. Adams, right. <laughs> So, standard question, why is this a favorite? Ah, uh, this is a favorite. I So, he, he wrote uh, a little thing in the introduction that basically sums up why I love this book. He says, what I wanted to do was to write a book that would do for adults what the books I had loved when younger, books like Alice in Wonderland or the Narnia books or the Wizard of Oz did for me as a kid. Mm -hmm. So, that's his brief. He set out to do that, and I think he nailed it, and that's why I love it, because I love those books, and I love this book. And this book is... A little bit darker and a little bit more sophisticated than Alice in Wonderland and Narnia, uh, and it's and it's written by, um, I would argue, uh, an an author with a more talent and facility than any of those authors. Uh, Gaiman is an incredible uh, an incredible writer in multiple media, uh, and I think he just absolutely nails it with this book. It's it reads. I don't know. We're gonna find out your take on it in yeah. a second. To me, so much of this book feels iconic, like it, like it dates back to like fifty or hundred years, like he's, like he's reusing specific myths and that sort of thing. But he's not. This is all brand new. It's invention, uh, and yet it's got that feel to it to me. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. So before we get too much deeper, just a little sidebar here. There are actually three different versions of this novel <laughs> in existence. I found out reading the uh, the foreword. Yeah. Um, so it was originally published in the UK. Mm -hmm. As you uh, mentioned, as it was developed alongside a, a TV show, TV series, he rewrote parts of it for an American release. Yes, uh, just to take some of the the stuff that we wouldn't get out of there, or at least put some context around it. And then he has since re rewritten it as a synthesis of the two other novels with some other ideas, apparently that he wanted to either polish up or you know tone down a bit. Yeah. Um, so the one that I read, at least, is the third. Yeah, I think that's the one that I've read this time also, and I'm not sure if I own another edition, but nothing stood out to me as significantly different, but it's been maybe 20 years yeah. since I read it previously. I do remember there were one or two spots when I was reading along, and and it seemed to jump. It was If, if, if I was watching a film, it would have been a flash frame or a jump cut. Hmm. Uh, I'm thinking... I wonder if this is a place where two of the versions collided, ah. right? Where he, he extracted something or inserted something from the other one, and it just it almost fit. You know, he had, to, he had to push on the puzzle piece a little bit to get it into the hole. Interesting. I didn't notice that. Do you know? Do you know where that was? You know, I'm really thinking as I'm saying this <laughs> that that's something I should have noted um, and didn't. That's um, okay. I, that's an observation, and we don't need to rules lawyer it into whether it was or wasn't. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. But interesting, interesting observation. Yeah, uh, I also I really enjoy I really enjoy the humor of this book, uh, and the humor again it reminds me of Douglas Adams, but much more of his uh, Dirk Gently books mm -hmm. than his Hitchhiker books. In that the humor is the humor proceeds mostly from character. It's fairly dry and very British, 
uh, and and charming and whimsical as opposed to the sort of you know uh, Vogon poetry of, yes. of Hitchhiker's Guide. Well, and it's it's lovely in that the the humor. This is not a comedy book by any stretch of the imagination. No, um, no, it's quite and, dark. But it's liberally laced with humor. Yeah. Um, and again, it's it's all situational. There's a lot of wry asides and that sort of thing. You know, yeah. characters just making snarky observations. Well, snarky is not even the right word, but yeah. Uh, but yeah. Here's here's one just one brief example. Uh, as as they're about to go, Richard Richard Mayhew, our our nominal hero, or at least our protagonist, uh, joins up with a girl named Dor, who can open portals. Uh, Dor is from London beneath, and Richard is from what we call what we think of as the real world, London above. And they are about to get in an elevator and go somewhere very dark and scary. And he says, now would be a very bad time to discover that one was claustrophobic, wouldn't it? <laughs> yes, said Dor. Then I won't, said Richard. Yeah. Yeah. There are definitely moments like that. I've, I've got one noted as well. Early, early on in his misadventures. Can I ask a question, said Richard. Certainly not, said the Marquis. You don't ask any questions. You don't get any answers. You don't stray from the path. You don't even think about what's happening to you right now. Got it? But, most important of all, no buts. Now, we have a damsel to undistress. <laughs> <laughs> to undistress. Yeah. Yes, I love that. But, you know, he is treated, he is so dismissed throughout the first quarter, maybe the first third of the book. Yeah. Um, you know, and even by Dor, yeah. um, whose life he saved, and you know, her... She feels a little bit sorry for what she knows is going to happen to him because of his involvement, but she's completely content to abandon him. I, it's interesting. And, and at first it strikes me as, as very cruel that she owes a huge debt to Richard who saved her and, and doesn't seem to be cognizant of that. But I think what everybody thinks is happening is that it's just inevitable that he's going to die. And so there's no use wasting any time on him. He's right. doomed. It's like, oh, yeah, so you've got the mark of death on you. Eh, sorry. Sorry that happened. See ya. Yep. Uh, and he continually surprises everyone by not dying. <laughs> <laughs> so he, What a lovely way to say it. Yeah, that's, that's, that's accurate. Yeah. Uh, and then he does actually, towards the end, become something of a hero, which is fascinating. Yeah. Yep. He gets the begrudging respect of the Marquis. Yeah. And he kills he kills the great beast of London. Yeah. Yeah. With spoiler, sorry. <laughs> presumably. Uh, yeah. yeah. Watch, watch out. I assume yeah. that people that listen to this have already read the books. But uh, one would hope. One, one would, would hope. Yeah. One would hope. Yeah. And Hunter. Oh, my goodness. What an interesting character she turned out to be. Hunter is great. That's a that's a twist that comes out of nowhere. I mean, it, I've read this book before, so and still it's just like, oh, no. <laughs> well, you know, and he sets it up. He said it comes yeah. out of nowhere, and I, I disagree. You just don't oh. see it at the time. Yes. Uh, right? But, you know, she the one of the few times she opens her mouth to say more than five words, she talks about the fact, about these other beasts that she has killed and how yes. yeah. she will be the one to kill the Beast of New York. Yeah. Uh, wait, does your edition say Beast of New York? Uh, probably not. Okay, all right, just checking. I, I may have just inserted that because I think <laughs> okay. that's what it should have said. Okay, uh, I think it's the Great Beast of London. I think. Great Beast of London, yeah. whatever. Okay, I was whatever. She, if, if you read there, an edition there is that a Great Beast that we have, <laughs> have been introduced to, and she wants to be the one to kill it because yeah. she has killed these other Great Beasts. Yes, okay. You know? yeah. So, I mean, that... When, when the betrayal does come, I certainly did not see it coming. But when yeah. it came, you know, I snapped back to that moment and thought, oh. Yeah, this was okay, set up. I get yeah, it. this is, 
is is shocking but not a surprise right yeah, yeah you know and then he tries to richard tries to make her feel bad about it she's like i have saved your life so many times <laughs> i just saved your life on that rickety old bridge yes just now yeah he's like yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah so uh yeah hunter's a surprise the angel is a surprise the angel is an amazing surprise yeah. and that that one made me so happy yeah um because i'm as we're leading up to this thing and we're getting farther and farther into it, I'm like, what can the bad guy possibly be? Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, we're enlisting a freaking angel in the quest to, to set things right. What, what can the bad guy possibly be? Right? Yes. Please tell me we're not going after Satan or something absurd like yeah. this. Yeah. Oh, it's the angel. <laughs> it, just, it just made me so happy. Yeah. Uh, so, and the angel, the angel, by the way, is the angel, I believe it's pronounced Islington, the angel Islington, which is a, uh, subway stop, uh, or a tube stop, uh, on the London underground. Mm -hmm. And most of the locations in the book, this is the conceit of the book, that most of the locations are sort of, are sort of reinterpretations of the names of, of tube stops. Mm -hmm. Uh, like Blackfriars is the name of one tube stop, except that rather than being a sort of you know, neighborhood in London. It's a place where literal black friars hang out in a yep. abbey. Yeah. Uh, so that's really fun. That's really fun to sort of take this tour of the London Underground. There's a lot of intriguing there. And, you know, I mean, they refer to this alternate world as the Underground. Yes, yes. Uh, that was the other thing that uh, Gaiman wanted to do with this. So he had two things in mind. One was to do this, this thing that I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast. And the other was to... Uh, write a book about the the people who get ignored, the people who are passed over, left behind, uh, and and you see them every day uh, on the streets of London, the streets of any major city. You see uh, people who just like, and people you know walk by them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you kind of train yourself to make them invisible. Um, you know, they're sitting there with a raggedy cardboard sign, uh, and they don't really participate in the world of London above. Uh, but they do have in this fantasy book a rich sort of underworld experience. Um, and once you cross over, you can't go back. This is Richard's doom that he faces because right. he helps Dor. He gets drawn into London beneath. And when he comes, tries to go back to his world, he's literally invisible. He's literally, inv no one can see him. Yeah. yeah. And, and again, I fault Dor at this moment because I mean, she <laughs> says, I'm sorry, right? She knows yeah. this is going to happen to him. And like you say, she... The expectation is he'll be dead soon. Yeah. But she makes absolutely no effort whatsoever to try and school him or coach him and yeah. say, this is what's coming. Yes. This is this is, this is is your future for the next three days and before you die. Yeah. Right? She's like, I'm sorry, and leaves. She could say that. Although, uh, to be fair to Dor, she has just experienced, her entire family has been wiped out, murdered. She's the only one left. Her, yeah. her parents, and the, her family are basically immortal, I want to say. Uh, they, or at least they've been around for a long, long time. Um, They're a little bit fuzzy on lifespans yeah, and timelines yeah. on some of this stuff. Yeah, like our villains, are not our villains, our villains henchmen, angels are villain, but um, our henchmen, Mr. Krupp and Mr. Vanderbar, mm -hmm. uh, have been around for centuries. Yeah. And he's a little bit vague, and again, maybe deliberately so, but they... What's next? Well, next is 13th century England, where we get to, you know, just are they actually traveling through time? Or did that moment happen, you know, in 12th century Earth so that they're, yeah. you know, they have the foreknowledge of what will come, but they're taking, as Doctor Who would say, the long way around. Yeah. That I don't know. 
That I don't know. I know that when they do travel from from stops to stops in the underground, they talk about the fact that time moves differently. Yes. Uh, I think she says something along the lines of, there's a lot of time in London, and it doesn't all get used up at once. (laughs) It has to go somewhere. Yes. Yeah. That was fascinating. Uh, Yeah, and the... um the tube stations don't necessarily correspond geographically to where they are in London above. Earl's Court in particular uh, is a is a train car, and mm-hmm. it travels around. It is not at Earl's Court, uh, and is the court of a literal Earl. Um, yeah, so that's fun, too. The Marquis. Did you uh, have the, um, the story about how the Marquis got his coat back? I did, but I didn't yours. read it. Oh, what a shame. Oh, is it good? It is quite enjoyable. It has a couple of little holes in it that I, I would have <laughs> would have uh, enjoyed discussing. But uh, um, it was fun. It's a fun little sidebar, um, yeah. and it offers a lot of insight into that character, which mm, okay. I, I feel like Neil probably wanted to play with that character a little more, but it just it didn't fit in the narrative. Yeah. I was getting the impression it didn't fit in the narrative, and I thought the narrative worked so well as it was that I didn't want to like stick a wart on the end of it. <laughs> <laughs> this is no. not like the last chapter of Clockwork Orange. No, okay, this, this, yes. this, this is a welcome addition. <laughs> All right. Uh, the Marquis de Carabas is interesting. So there's also a graphic novel of this book, um, which is a fun interpretation as well. Uh, and something I didn't realize about the Marquis de Carabas, and I was looking for it this time through, and if it was mentioned, I missed it. Uh, he is described as black, but it's not clear what that means. And I assume that meant he was of African descent. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in the graphic novel, he is not African. He's not black, capital B. He is black, like Vanta black, black. He is, he is uh, nearly invisible in his blackness, nearly featureless. Uh, not a skin tone black, but just a mm-hmm. black void, pretty yeah. much, with eyes. Yeah. Well, they don't give us a direction on that one. Yeah. So That may be an invent. I don't know if that's just what he had in his head and he never quite got that on the page or if that's an invention for the graphic novel or what, but that was a striking choice. Well, he's, he's vague in a lot of the descriptions. And again, I think that works, yeah. you know, to the advantage because yeah. you, you populate it in your <laughs> head and then you, you know what the character looks like without, yeah. without I, having to be told. Coming back to Mr. Group and Venture Vanderbar, who is source of a lot of the humor in the book, mm-hmm. uh, surprisingly, as, as two henchmen who delight in killing and torturing, uh, there's a wonderful description of them as, you know, uh, you would never you would never mistake one for the other because Mr. Croup has long males and Mr. Vandemar is about a foot taller and one has sharp teeth and da 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 and a whole list of differences. And besides that, they look nothing alike. <laughs> <laughs> and besides that, they look nothing alike. Yes. Again, that was a very Douglas Adams description. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I wonder if I had been introduced to Neil Gaiman earlier in my life than Douglas Adams, if Douglas Adams would be very Neil Gaiman in his humor. Interesting. I, you know, Gaiman isn't always, always humorous though. I mean, like, I don't find, you've read American Gods, right? Yes. Okay. I don't find that book very humorous at all. I mean, there might be some, some whimsy in in occasions, but it's a pretty dark and pretty heavy book for the most part. But this is, this is the second one of his books we've done, is it not? Or is this the first? Is it? Did we do another one? I feel like we should know this. I feel like we should know that there have been 48 episodes, so I think we're entitled to to forget, you know, something that's spread it over two years. I don't know that we have, because it would have been, what would have been? American Gods, Ocean at the End of the Lane, Stardust. I don't think we have. None of those. Yeah. 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 So this is probably our first. Yeah. Sandman. I don't know. We're not doing graphic novels, so that's that's his magnum opus. 
Yeah, got to say this is the first. Yeah. <laughs> let's let's go with that. Uh, if anybody's listening, <laughs> uh, leave a comment saying you're so wrong. It will probably be not the first time. Yeah. All right. While you're looking that up, I have another great quote, uh, which is a riff on the opening sentence of Necromancer. Oh, okay. Uh, Necromancer, one of the most famous opening sentences in all of science fiction. Uh, the sky over whatever city it was, the sky over Chiba City was the dull gray of a television turned to a dead channel. Uh, love that sentence. Uh, he has, on page 400 with no comment whatsoever, just tosses it in there, the sky was the perfect untroubled blue of a television screen turned to a dead channel. You know, I remember that comment because that's not the way my televisions worked. Interesting. There, well, at one point, if you turned your TV on, you didn't have it attached to anything, a dead channel would just get snow. Right. That's, uh, that's what I think of because, you know, during my formative years, that's how television worked. But then we got new televisions. Uh, they became blue. Yep. Yeah. So uh, once we went, I don't know, digital maybe. I'm not sure what the transition was there. But yeah, that was a, it was an interesting thing to call out. So it was fun. Yeah. Fun little reference. <laughs> yeah. One thing that I do appreciate in a, in a novel is when it stretches my vocabulary a little bit. In mm. um, this one, there were three or four words that I had to, of course, in your reading on the Kindle, it doesn't take much to look them up. Yeah. Uh, but this one really stuck with me. I, I'm going to attempt to pronounce it. Oleaginous. Oleaginous. I think Oleaginous was in one of your favorite books, uh, the um, the Green World. What was that one? Oh, uh, yeah, the Green Star. The Green, Under Star. The Green Star by the Green Star. Yeah, it means it means fatty or oily. Yeah. Oily. Yep. Yeah. Uh, a voice from beside him. Oleaginous is sump oil. But that one, that word is like, oh, I want to remember that word. That's a that's, good word. That's a good word. Uh, there are a couple words that I highlighted because I, Kindle didn't help me out, uh, like knob carries and mangonels, which I still don't know what they are. I need to look those up. Mangonel is a type of siege engine that throws really? uh, arrows. It's in the uh, catapult family. Oh, that's fun. But giant. Uh, I have another highlight here. This is another just example of, of the, the humor that comes from... Krupp and Vandermeer, uh, Vandermar, uh, they kill somebody, Varney, Varney who's keeping a secret from them, and they have to kill him to, uh, to get the secret. After that, the blood began to flow, wet, red blood in enormous quantities, for Varney was a big man, and he had been keeping it all inside. <laughs> that is just, I mean, it's whimsical and horrible at the same yep. time. Uh, that's Something that can't possibly be funny. <laughs> and yet it is. That's yep. a fine line to walk, yeah. Uh, but I think that's about all I have for, for this book. I, I love this book. I, I, Gaiman's an incredible writer. This is my favorite of his books that actually exist in book form. I think Sandman might be, I might lodge Sandman ahead of this, but this definitely lands ahead of American Gods for me okay. or any of his other properties. Um, it, is just a, it is just a delight to read. It is basically a portal fantasy, which is my favorite form of fantasy where someone goes off to a new world and learns something about themselves and often return to the original world. And that's where they're supposed to stay with their lesson and their new knowledge. But in fact, in a lot of portal fantasies, people like to stay instead. Yeah. And so he does. Well, you're right. This, yeah. this was delightful. Uh, yeah. I really enjoyed the read. Um, and at the end, as, as we're winding up, his 
Richard's big wish is to return to his normal world. And, you know, they make that happen. They, they wield power and, and, you know, make his wish come true. And even as I'm reading it, I'm thinking... He's not staying. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I don't know what it was that telegraphed it to me, but it's like, no, he's he's he can't stay there. Um, he, and of course, he doesn't. Well, I think the thing about Richard is that he was never very successful in the real world. He just sort of like got pushed around in his life. He had a, a girlfriend who sort of dominated the relationship. Mm -hmm. uh, he didn't have much agency in his own life. And he just sort of stumbled into a sort of grudging success that was enough to get by, and he missed that sense of security. But as soon as he found real agency and real connection in London below, then what he found in London above was never going to be a match for that. So, Well, yeah. he goes back to London above a changed man, right? Yes. And, yeah. And he's wielding agency and authority, and he, yeah. he gets a raise, he gets a better apartment. Um Things are going well for him. And, and, and a little bit, it kind of reminds me of the hobbits returning to the Shire. Yes. Right? You've got these battle-hardened hobbits coming back, and things have gone amok in the Shire, and they step in to, yeah. you know, yeah. to set things right. But clearly, it couldn't, it can't end with him going back to working. I don't even remember what his job was, but it was something so mundane. Yeah, you know? some boring office job. Yeah. And yeah. it doesn't, you know. He yeah. freaks out on a street person and then <laughs> sketches a door on the wall and there's the marquee. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful book. Yeah. A lot of fun. Indeed. All right. Well, that was far too upbeat. So I think uh, I think for our next oh, no. our next episode, we need to plunge into some uh, some dark and horrific depths. I think we're going to read a little bit of H.P. Lovecraft. Oh, fun. Do we know which one? There's a collection I've got my eye on. Okay. All right. All right. So we will see you in two see weeks. See you in two weeks. <laughs>